what grounds your worldview? What is it that makes you continue to believe what you have been believing? I'm not speaking only to Christians when I asked that question here this morning. Uh, that's a question that's equally for the atheist, the agnostic, the New Age spiritualist, the Muslim who might be with us here today. When something challenges our view of the world, maybe it's a competing idea, a difficult circumstance, uh, the failure of someone we trust who shared our outlook, where do we go to address that challenge? Where do we go to rule it out of court? How do we overcome doubt? For some, it might be seeking a sympathetic friend or a trusted teacher. Others might study and learn how to intellectually poke holes, perhaps, in this uh, challenge uh, to their faith, this poking holes in this competing philosophy. Offense, the best defense, some might say. Many might simply dismiss their doubt by appealing to a higher authority. It is, it's not on me. It's on these leading scientists. It's on these edicts from this religious council. It's likely we probably mix some of these methods, depending on the source of the philosophical threat to our belief. As Christians, where do we turn? Where should we turn? I think it's fair to say that North American evangelicals, we've earned ourselves the reputation for not being great at answering that kind of question. Most of us can give a, a one-word answer to that. Jesus, the Bible. But why are those grounds reliable? Why do they stack up so well against the grounds of other worldviews? If we can't answer that, if we can't engage in that kind of conversation, we're in a dangerous position. This kind of intellectual challenge has led many to abandon their faith. Usually it doesn't happen at the snap of the fingers. It's a lingering doubt, a doubt that's not addressed, a doubt that's ignored but not defeated, and eventually it deals a fatal blow to our faith. Now, this situation was what was playing out, it appears, in the Phrygian city of Colossae in the mid-first century. It's in modern-day Turkey. Plenty of ink has been spilled about this new philosophy that Paul says was causing trouble in the Colossian church. Some say it was Gnosticism or Jewish mysticism, some kind of local folk religion, or perhaps a mixture of all three. Frankly, the Bible doesn't really care to give us a specific identification. It gives us some defining features. But what matters, as we'll see, is what this teaching was undermining. The Apostle Paul, who it seems had not personally been to Colossae, we see that in chapter 2, verse 1. He hasn't seen these people face to face. He likely hears about this situation from his friend Epaphras. Epaphras was the one, apparently, who brought the gospel to Colossae. And Epaphras has gone to Rome, likely, to see Paul, who is imprisoned there. And Paul writes this letter uh, to the church in Colossae. That's sort of the setting, the background of this. And his main appeal to them, there's really just one central appeal that he has to the Colossians. It begins in chapter 2, verse 6, and continues right through until 4-7, the body of his letter. This is what I hope to deal with over the next two Sundays here at New City. Chapter 1, as Phil read for us earlier, it sets up many of the themes of this main exhortation to the Colossians. Most famously, of course, he brings forth that exaltation of the supremacy of the Son of God in chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. So that's why I had Paul read, uh, Phil read that for us earlier. It shows that Paul is clearly concerned that the Colossians understand the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to admit here just at the outset of this little two-week mini-series, 
we are barely going to skim the surface of some of these verses. There is a treasure trove of gospel truth in the book of Colossians. But I hope you'll be able to walk away from these two sermons with the big picture of why Colossians is in our Bibles. And why is that important? Well, the situation in Colossae is one that has been repeated over and over and over again in the history of the church. We are experiencing it in Toronto right now. We need to know, as Christians, how to withstand philosophical challenges to our faith, particularly ones that attack the doctrines of Christ, be it directly or indirectly. And that's going to be our focus here today. And we also need to be reminded how we should be living every day in the light of these lofty truths about our Savior. It's not enough to hold to right doctrine. Right doctrine produces right living, and we're going to be spending most of our time next week on that aspect of Paul's message uh, to the Colossians. And so with this in mind, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. We're just going to read this glorious text together, read it right through. These are truly some of the sweetest verses in the Bible. Let's hear God's word together. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with the things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom, 
with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now you can see in your bulletins that the first five verses of that passage I just read, they provide really the big picture of what is to follow. In verses 6 to 8, Paul reveals his twin central desires for the Colossians. This is the main purpose, really, of his writing. These verses, they begin a string of imperative commands that flow from the supremacy of Christ, which he's highlighted in chapter 1. And it's really a dual command that Paul gives, starting in verse 6. Verse 6, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue, continue, that's the command, to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, overflowing with thankfulness. That's what Paul wants the Colossians to do. Verse 8 is the negative. See to it, see to it, again an imperative, that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of the world rather than on Christ. Right here we have Paul's mission statement for his letter to the Colossians. Continue in the faith that Epaphras shared with you. Don't be deceived by anything else. Continue. Don't turn. My youngest daughter, Betty, uh, she's about one year old now. Uh, We got her her first pair of shoes uh, last week. Uh, When I take her to the park, I I spend most of my time preventing her serious injury. If she could, she would walk straight off an eight-foot platform. Gravity is of no concern to her. I have to physically redirect her constantly. Paul's letter is functioning in the same way. It actually goes a step further, as parents of older children might do. Paul doesn't say, continue to walk blindly because I'm an apostle and I say so. He says, this is why the good choice is good. Paul says, continue, overflowing with thankfulness because where you are going and who you are following are without comparison. The path you are considering leaving is the undisputed best one. And that's really what he begins to do in verses 9 and 10. For in Christ... All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. That's really his rationale for the commands he gave in 6 to 8. Why continue? Why not go after this new spiritual philosophy? Because, verses 9 and 10, in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you've been brought to fullness. He's the head over every power and authority. We have to note the tense of those verses. That is super important. We can miss it. It's very subtle. It's just that little is, right? It is in the present tense. Jesus Christ is the God-man. He did not cease to be at his death or at his ascension. This person who is the fullness of God in the flesh of man lives right now. He is at the right hand of God, mediating all of his father's sovereignty. This God-man is alive, and he is active in the Colossians' day, and he is alive, and he is active 
in our day. Christ's supreme authority and his dual nature of divine son and resurrected man is where Paul is grounding his earlier commands. I'm going to repeat that. Christ's supreme authority and his dual nature of divine son and resurrected man is where Paul grounds his main commands to the Colossians. Why do these truths in particular about the person of Christ demand the Colossians and by extension our own loyalty? Paul gives us three reasons for us. You can see them in your bulletin. Because by faith we're united to the supreme God-man, because all other philosophies are rooted in shakier ground, and because these truths put our earthly lives in proper perspective. That's where we're going today. And again, I can't stress enough the depth of the text that we are about to sort of just skim into with our little shovels. We're about to dig into some pretty heavy verses here that are you can spend weeks studying these verses alone. There are dozens of ways we could meditate on some of them, but I'm following the main flow of Paul's thought through uh, these verses. So let's look at that first point. Why do the truths of verses 9 and 10 about the person of Christ demand the Colossians' loyalty? Because by faith, they are united to his person. They are tied up with this supreme God-man. Look at verse 11. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, at first glance, I know these verses, they seem a bit jarring. We're reading along, we're, we're tracking with Paul, and then all of a sudden, circumcision, four times in two verses. And we kind of we lose his train of thought, I think, naturally. What does Paul mean by a circumcision not performed by human hands? This is going to require some, some biblical theology on our parts here. A common theme in the Old Testament was that God's people were physically circumcised, but uncircumcised in heart. This was true from the very beginning. Listen to Moses in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. He's speaking to a bunch of circumcised Israelites there at this point. The physical right was clearly of no great value. It was the spiritual one that God was still to work Um, Paul really highlights this here in Colossians for us by using the phrase, not by human hands, in verse 11. That by human hands part is particularly important. That's a phrase that's often used uh, in the Old Testament to describe idol making. Paul is clearly linking uh, the act of physical circumcision. He's casting it in a poor light, essentially, by using that phrase. He's making the point that even under the Old Covenant, there was still a need for spiritual surgery, one not performed by human hands, but by God alone operating on the hearts of his people. This is what has been required for salvation from the time of Moses to today. Physical circumcision was never intended to be a permanent right for all of redemptive history. It was to point forward to what? It points forward to the death of Christ. That's where Paul goes in verse 12. Here Paul introduces the phrase, uh, the circumcision of Christ. 
I'm going to say of there. I believe that's the better translation. The ESV uh, has this one correct. Um, it doesn't change it too, too much, but I think it's, it's more precise. The circumcision of Christ as opposed by Christ. Uh, the meaning of the phrase is this. God cut off Christ's bodily life at the cross just as a foreskin is removed in physical circumcision. That's the connection. By virtue of our incorporation into Christ's death, his circumcision is now also ours. Christ's death is the surgery we need. Thomas Schreiner says this, the Old Testament demand, the Old Testament demand for and promise of a circumcised heart have now become a reality in the cross. Christ's cross is the true circumcision for believers. Just as Christ's bodily life was cut off, so in verse 11, our whole self ruled by the flesh is cut off when we are united to Christ by faith. More deep metaphors coming here. Paul then switches metaphors slightly to further illustrate how closely we, the Colossians, and us as believers are now united to the person of Christ. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Just how closely are Christians united to Christ? Not only do we die with him, as we just considered in verse 11, as Paul revealed for us, but we are also buried with him and raised with him through faith in what God has done in Christ. Here is the gospel in its full beauty in these verses. This verse is really speaking of our conversions. Baptism, as the outward sign of our conversion, reenacts the whole experience of conversion to the watching world. Christina, there you are, you're front and center. Perfect, perfect sitting placement today. Christina, in two weeks, this is what we'll be celebrating with you at Sunnyside Beach. This is the weight of what we will be doing. You will be reenacting the power of God that has so worked in your life that it has brought you from death in the flesh to life in Christ. Your baptism will proclaim your death to sin your total surrender to God, your solidarity with his son as you are plunged beneath the waters of Lake Ontario, metaphorically buried, and then raised back up, signifying your new life in Christ, and that one day you too will bodily rise like your Savior. Brothers and sisters, we all do well to remember what our baptisms represent, the significance of our baptisms. We are not saved, of course, by the physical act in itself, to believe that would be to make the same mistake the Jews were doing about circumcision. We would be believing in something uh, made by human hands. Our baptisms represent the powerful working of God operating on our hearts, bringing us to faith in his son. Spiritual circumcision, the spiritual circumcision of the old covenant is the precursor to baptism under the new covenant. It's not a one-to-one physical circumcision baptism. And so rejoice, Christian, in what God has done for you, displayed outwardly and publicly in your baptism. Verse 13 really summarizes it pretty well. It says this, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. That's what happens when we are saved. Christina, that is true for you. It is true for me. It is true for every person here today who has, verse 12, Faith in the working of God who raised Christ from the dead. 
But Paul, he isn't done dwelling on just how much we are united to the supreme person of Christ. Look at verse 13b. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Paul's point in a sentence or two is we do not have to keep uniting ourselves to Jesus. It is a once and for all reality. His cross is totally and completely sufficient. And there are also two images here that Paul uses. There's the IOU image. As creatures made in God's image, all of us, every human being here in this building today, we owe God our full allegiance by our existence. He made us. Our sin, our rebellion against God breaks this vow. At the heart of all sin is this failure to give God his proper allegiance, to exalt ourselves or to exalt others in his place. And so this this IOU, you could picture it like that, mounts and it becomes our death warrant. It stands against and condemns us in the presence of a holy God. But thanks be to God that he has canceled it for all of those united to his son. And canceled it how? Paul uses a very descriptive phrase, excellent phrase, by nailing it to the cross of Christ. It's as we just sung. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. He actually changes the metaphor slightly from a sort of an accounting one with that IOU, to a criminal courtroom in first century Rome. The charges against criminals in Rome, they were nailed to the cross, usually, above the person being executed. Jesus had one, of course, famously. What did Jesus say? King of the Jews. What it said above Jesus' head. Think about that charge. While it was a treasonous statement in the eyes of Rome, a blasphemous statement in the eyes of the Pharisees. In reality, it was a true statement. Jesus is the king of kings. He's also the king of the Jews. It was a non-charge. Jesus was guilty of nothing. But this verse here in Colossians 2.13 shows us what was not seen physically on the day of Christ's crucifixion, but nevertheless was the reality of what was happening in that moment. While the charge leveled by Pilate against Jesus was bogus, there were a bunch of other charges nailed to the cross of Christ on that day. Mine was there. Angela, yours was there. Quinn, yours was there. My question to all of you here today, to all of us, is was yours there? Or is it still hanging over your own head? In summary here, Paul tells the Colossians and us, Continue in the faith, overflowing with thankfulness, because by faith we are intricately united to the supreme God-man. His death is our death. His life is our life. He erased our insurmountable guilt before God. How could any other idea approach that? Point number two. Christ's supreme authority and his dual nature demand our loyalty because all other philosophies are rooted in shakier ground. This is really the central matter of the whole book. The Colossians, they ought to reject the teachers of this fine-sounding argument, verse 4, this hollow and deceptive philosophy depending on human tradition in verse 8. Why? 
because verse 10, Christ is the head over every power and authority. All things are subject to Christ and not just subject. Look at verse 15. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, that's Christ, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus' defeat of death has left his enemies impotent. The image of this verse is of a victorious king returning with defeated prisoners in tow. Roman generals often did this. They carted around their conquered leaders around the city when they came home, sort of wallowing in their victory, uh, in this humiliating parade of those they defeated. This is what Christ did to Satan and his demons at his resurrection. They were humiliated, utterly trounced. Death was Satan's ultimate weapon, the sting of sin. It now could have no hold on any who could be united to Christ. And Satan knows that he's ultimately lost this bad. He's lost the battle for God's image bearers. All he can do now is rage, scratch, and claw until the certain day arrives. Uh, one of his favorite desperation efforts, as Paul highlights here, is to amplify teaching that diminishes Christ. His chief work, after all, is to deceive. He is the deceiver. He has been since the garden. Now, this is not to exonerate the human agents, of course, of the philosophies that oppose uh, Christianity, that oppose Christ. Uh, there's enough corruption, of course, in our own sinful selves to concoct all kinds of false ideas. But Satan and his demons, they do work to amplify them. Ephesians 6.12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It's important to notice that Paul, in, the, in that Ephesians verse, but also in our text today, he doesn't dismiss the reality of these spiritual forces. They are working against God's people. That is not in doubt. But these powers and authorities, Paul's argument is, are of this world only. They possess none of the authority of Christ. It is not a tug of war between good and evil. It is God and it is not God. That is not a contest. So Paul says, don't give their ideas the time of day. It's really a fundamental identifier that Paul highlights for a philosophy that's not worth fretting about as a Christian. And it's revealed to us back in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of the world, rather than on Christ. Get to the root. Discern the source. Where is Christ in the worldview that's being espoused? Where is Christ in this new teaching? If Jesus is relegated, if he is redefined, if he is removed entirely from the equation, the idea is not worth your concern. That is not to say we don't ever engage in debate as Christians. There's, of course, a time and a place for a solid amount of reasoning and pleading with our friends to, who are still captive to these deceptive philosophies. Paul's not condemning that kind of thing. He's concerned for the souls of the Colossians that seem to be distressed about these competing ideas. They are unnerved. They're struggling with doubt. Have we really, have we really got the truth here? Paul wants them to abolish that with the fundamental truth of the situation. They have all that they need in Christ, and his power is not comparable to any man or demon. They need not fear that they have been deceived. 
The Christ they know is supreme and he is all-sufficient. Supreme and all-sufficient. That's the two-word summary of Colossians. His gospel cannot be improved. And so God's people can live freely in light of this truth. They can be free in the gospel. That's really what verses 16 to 23 highlight for us. They are just that. They are a call to Christian freedom. Verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. It seems from these verses that the teaching that was threatening the Colossians uh, was drawing from some Jewish roots, likely in tandem with some uh, pagan folk religions, as we'll see in a moment. But these rules, Paul highlights, verse 17, underline that one in your Bibles, they are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Christ has fulfilled the law. The new philosophy is advocating for shadows. Those who are in Christ by faith have the substance. Christians are no longer obligated to observe OT dietary laws or festivals or holidays or special days. To require such things would be to add to the gospel. Verse 18, and it's here we get the pagan aspect of this bad philosophy. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Now, it was common in the first century for Jewish-influenced folk belief to advocate for calling on angels for help, uh, for protection from evil spirits, perhaps. Uh, Inscriptions have been found sort of revealing this practice in and around that era. It's a form of idol worship. It's essentially what it is. Angels are mere creatures, just like humans. They have no power to save sinners. In fact, the Bible says in the book of 1 Peter that angels, they long to experience the power of the gospel in the privileged place of man. Again, the ground of such teaching is not in Christ. Therefore, these teachers have no right to make the Colossians question their salvation. They can't disqualify them as being God's people. Who has qualified them? Back in chapter 1, do you catch that when Phil was reading? Chapter 1, verse 12, the Father has qualified them in Christ. Who are these teachers to disqualify them? Paul continues. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. And here Paul is returning to his central thesis. This teacher or these teachers, they can be disregarded because they have lost connection with Christ. A building without a stable foundation crumbles on itself. Notice here also there's a common trait of a false teacher or a teacher not worth following from outside the church. It's worth noting. These teachers, they often go into great detail about their experiences. In other words, there is a heavy emphasis on what they have seen and they personally have felt. God spoke to me and to me only in this way. Therefore, you must worship angels. Therefore, you must fast once a week. Therefore, you must give $5 to my ministry, and you'll get $5,000 back later. Brother, sister, that is a hollow and deceptive philosophy dependent on human tradition and experience. Those are unreliable grounds. Beware of preachers who seem to be above critique who answer questions and challenges to their teaching by claiming special revelation. If you encounter a teacher who starts to sound like that, run in the other direction. If I ever start to sound like that, you should fire me. I'm dead serious. 
you should remove me as an elder and probably excommunicate me unless I repent. God has spoken sufficiently in his word. My authority, John's authority, Paul's authority when he's preaching at GFC Rexdale, it is an authority of counsel which extends only as far as this book allows. Only as far as we preach Christ of the scriptures because it is from him and him only that the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. And I love this last verse. It's really a buried nugget in this text. It's kind of a, a sidebar in a way. The church, Christ's body, grows only as God causes it to grow. The church of our day, the 21st century church, is littered with men and women who brand themselves as church growth gurus, as uh, planting strategizers or inventors of guaranteed disciple-making movements. Those are pious-sounding terms and nice-sounding titles. Don't take this personally if you happen to bear one of these titles, because there are some good ones out there. But in general terms, that is putting lipstick on a pig. They are not innovative ideas at all. They are the result of the human tendency to rely more upon our own wisdom than on God's word. Brothers and sisters, let me be very clear. We cannot engineer the church. God causes it to grow. God and God alone. I know we are a church of engineers. There are a lot of them in this church, but we cannot do that. When we try to help them out by inventing new priorities for the local church, by constructing pragmatic governance structures that impress the business world uh, by smoothing over our teaching so that it aligns with the, the, the cultural flavor of the day. All we do is build something else. We are not building the church. We are building secular institutions that will one day crumble just like every other human institution. We are disconnected from the head. So what do we do? What can we do? Pray, preach the gospel, sing the gospel, what this word says, share the gospel, read the word, practice the ordinances, faithfully obey the word at home, at work, in private, and as a gathered church, humbly serve one another, love your neighbor, and God will cause his church to grow. Verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom, with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence." Paul's call to Christian freedom continues. He mocks the teaching the Colossians are adopting here. He does it somewhat charitably, but he's mocking it. They appear to embrace to some form of Jewish purity laws. This is legalism. Rules are being added where God is silent. I've been wondering, maybe you have as well, why is legalism so tempting? I think it's because it gives us the illusion of control. My three-year-old exhibits this in raw form. Whenever she can, Heidi will wrestle for control of a situation, even if she can only muster it in the smallest way. She wants to be the one to have chosen her own destiny. 
If she can't argue her way out of sitting down for dinner, she will demand a certain kind of bottle. She will grasp any opportunity to make herself feel as though she had the steering wheel over a certain situation. And this is really a core expression of our sinful nature. Autonomy is our default pursuit this side of the fall. So much so that even when something good is given to us, such as the grace of the gospel, we can't handle it. We want to add conditions to our own. There are a lot of echoes of the words of Jesus in Mark 7, in the text I just read. It may be the teaching that Paul had in mind as he wrote these words to the Colossians. Look at Mark 7, 14, Jesus speaking. Listen to me, everyone, understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. It is impossible to restrain sin through external laws. We cannot punish ourselves into heaven. No, listen to verse 23 again of our text. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom. They look pretty good, pretty pious, with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Our sinful nature can only be transformed by putting it to death in Christ. All other teaching relies upon lesser spiritual forces or human tradition, all of which fail to deal with this fundamental problem and are therefore of no comparison to the gift of the Spirit through faith in the risen and ruling Christ. Christ's dual nature and his supreme authority mean we and the Colossians can safely dismiss any ideas not rooted in that reality. All other philosophies are rooted in shakier ground, lesser authorities. Point number three, the supremacy of the resurrected Son of God puts our earthly lives in proper perspective. The first four verses of Colossians chapter three are a transition paragraph. They provide a conclusion to our considerations today and set up where we're going next week when Paul is going to expand on the Christian life. Some very practical exhortations in the rest of chapter three and part of four. But for today, these verses serve as a capstone to our earlier problem. Why? This is in summary. Why are Christ's supreme authority and his dual nature of divine son and resurrected man the critical facts that ground us against all philosophical challenges? Because it rules teaching based on lesser authorities out of court, as we just saw. Because Christ is not abstract in relationship to his people, but we are actually united to his powerful person by faith. And now finally, these truths change our perspective on our earthly lives. Chapter 3, verse 1. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. A fundamental problem with the philosophy challenging the Colossians, and the ones that we face today, most of them, is that they have an exalted view of this world. Pastor John spoke about this last week in his sermon on John 15 about abiding in Christ. We need to filter all the delights and all the troubles of our lives against eternity. This will temper us from overestimating both the good and the bad. And friends, this is countercultural. 
We do not live in a temperate time. There is a lot of pressure to condemn or applaud, but this is the perspective of someone who has not set their mind and heart on Christ and is too concerned with this world. Here's a summary of verses 3 and 4, a paraphrase. Our true life, the eternal life that is coming to us, is hidden with Christ on high. When he appears again, we will have glorified bodies like him. Whenever, New City, we lower our gaze from realities like that, we are susceptible to being led astray by earth-focused teaching. What does it mean to set our hearts and the minds on things above? How do we do that? After all, we can't physically see God's throne room. Put simply, it means living like the gospel is true. When I meet with some of you for our, our annual elder care meetings, you may have noticed this is often how I phrase my first question. Is Jesus alive to you? That is, have you been living like Jesus is actively on his throne, ruling over your life, or is his resurrection and ascension merely a fact of history in your thinking? Living like Jesus is alive means pursuing deeper knowledge of him and what he commands for us. It looks like organizing the priorities of our lives so that we make time for things that will last into eternity, like evangelism, helping other Christians finish the race, raising our children. It means dying to our own desires for the cause of the gospel. This is what it means to set our minds and hearts on Christ. Paul is saying, Jesus is alive. Live like it. Today, we've spent most of our time thinking about uh, the implications of the first half of the title of this sermon series. We've been looking at, you know, the theology of what it means that Jesus of Scripture is alive and ruling in his Father's right hand. Uh, next week and later in chapter 3, the rubber is going to hit the road. Uh, we'll be talking very practically about what it means to live uh, in light of the resurrection of Christ and the supreme rule of Christ over all other authorities. That must govern how we live day to day. We'll dig deeper into that next week. But for today, I just want to recall our opening question by way of conclusion here. What grounds our worldview? What is it that causes us to continue believing what we believe? This text has shown us that for Christians, the answer is nothing less than the current reality of who Jesus is. He is supreme ruler, the son of God, and a resurrected man. The historical facts of his resurrection and his ascension and his person have implications that cannot be ignored. If you have doubts about those facts, I would encourage you to pick up uh, one of those pamphlets off the back table. There's one titled The Evidence for the Resurrection, another titled Who is Jesus? Uh, come talk to me or any other member of the church after the service. Um, read through the Bible yourself. I, I will just say to you, it is not as easy to dismiss these things as recent secular scholarship might have you believe. And again, it's not just about facts, because as Christians, we are tied to Christ intricately. We have died with Christ to the world. We have been raised with him. There's a sense in which our true lives are right now hidden with him in heaven, as verse 3 reveals for us. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. What does it mean that our lives are hidden with Christ? The Bible uses this image, this language, often in the Psalms. Uh, it invokes a sense of security. Our salvation is being bound up in a safe place, and that sense is here in this text as well. But there's another facet to this idea of our lives being hidden with Christ. Listen to how David Garland puts it. A believer's true status remains concealed to others who do not have Christian insight. 
Believers already belong to the higher world where Christ reigns. They do not need to resort to baseless observances to seek safety from the powers of the world or to access a higher sphere like the philosophers were promoting the Colossians and, and going after visions. No, brothers and sisters, to be hidden with Christ is to know that our fullest life is yet to come. One day, the glory of our resurrection life in Christ will no longer be hidden, but revealed. His work of forming us into his image will be complete. Our souls will unite with glorified flesh. Romans 8.19 pictures this day. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. On that day, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage and decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. New City, that day is worth continuing for. It is worth rejecting ideas that offer pleasure only in this dying world. It's worth rejecting ideas that try and improve upon the gospel because there's no way you can improve it. Why abandon the greatest treasure imaginable? Friend, skeptic here today, what is the ground of your faith or creed? On what does it rely? I would say to you, there is no safer ground than the Christ of the scriptures. Brother, sister, continue in Christ. Continue and do not be swayed by fine-sounding arguments. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God, with Christ my Savior and my God. Amen.